This is Finding Joy, the healthcare professional's journey to well-being. It's a podcast developed by a team of interprofessional education researchers from Washington State University Health Sciences Spokane. They're promoting well-being among students, faculty, and healthcare professionals during challenging times. Funding is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. I'm Doug Nadvornik. Dr. Gibran Pasha has a very full life. He's a practicing internal medicine physician in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He has an administrative job at the University of Oklahoma, and he hosts a podcast that touches on some of the inequities in the American medical system. Today, instead of asking the questions, he's answering them. Gibran Pasha grew up in Tulsa. And then I left and went you know, really far away up to Kansas at the uh, University of Kansas for undergrad. And I stayed there for medical school. And then I finally got out of the, the Midwest and I went to Mayo Clinic in, in Phoenix uh, for residency, did my internal medicine residency there. And at that point, I was really open to settling anywhere but Tulsa, honestly. But some things happened. I was seriously seeing my girlfriend who was from Tulsa at the time and uh, my family, uh, who were willing to, you know, move from Tulsa, but were were there as well. My parents, my brother, my two nieces and nephew, and um, I also was pretty excited about some things that were going on in Tulsa, just in terms of development. I think it's time to go home, and so I didn't anticipate that to be the case when I left. But I've been back for nine years, and it's been a wonderful experience to be back in my hometown practicing medicine. So like many doctors, you juggle a lot of things. You had hospital work this morning. What other things are that are part of your professional life? Obviously, I, I still see patients. I'm a, um, just shy of a full-time hospitalist, but I also have some academic responsibilities. So I am assistant dean of student affairs. I oversee our pipeline programs with the goal of really recruiting folks that have traditionally been overlooked into healthcare, underrepresented minorities, people from rural backgrounds, people who have historically not had opportunities in healthcare. So we've built some some pretty great pipeline programs to do that. Also oversee our scholarship programs, which is great because I literally get to give money to students to go to medical school for free. That's a really cool opportunity that I have. And I also oversee our mentorship program. Clinically, I also really enjoy ultrasound, point of care ultrasound. Um, I've been doing that for Oh, probably six or seven years now. And I have my sonographer's license and started our point of care ultrasound curriculum for our residency program. Uh, and we also have a, a curriculum for our medical students. So our preclinical uh, medical students all roll into their clinical years, their third and fourth years with some pretty significant experience, point of care ultrasound. So I get to lead that with some colleagues. And you host a podcast. What happens when we face difficult conversations? These conversations can heal. They can foster forgiveness. They can inspire and change perspective. Lean into these stories and discussions. I think both You know, I think I wanted to do a podcast because one of my interests is engaging in difficult conversations. Um, it's something that I've gotten a little bit more comfortable doing, and I think I've gotten actually pretty good at having difficult conversations with people. And so I said, you know, what can I do in terms of developing a podcast that I think is going to make some sort of impact on the people who listen? And it was this podcast where really the mission is to help people 
become more comfortable having difficult conversations. So we talk about social issues, health disparities, disparities in the criminal justice system. We, we talk about current events, like what's going on in Ukraine right now. You know, it's me sitting down with some really smart people and just listening. Uh, and it's it's been a lot of fun so far. I'm Jabron Pasha, and I'm here with a, a special guest. We've got Dr. Rob Lim, who is a general surgeon, a bariatric surgeon, and he is a residency program director. We'll talk briefly about his academic career and what he does in medicine, but we're going to spend most of the time talking about a recent trip he made over to Ukraine. Dr. Lim, Rob, thanks for spending some time on a Monday morning. How, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. You were with Dr. Rob Lim, who was a, a medical surgeon, I think, at one time and went back to Ukraine for a couple of weeks. Tell me why you picked him and you wanted to talk to him. I just really respect him as a person. He's a stand-up guy. He's really, really intelligent. And every time I talk to him, no matter what we're talking about, I really get something out of it. And so I happen to be on LinkedIn and I see a story pop up uh, from Davidson College that's highlighting his current, at the time, current trip in the Ukraine, where he's teaching citizens of Ukraine, teaching them how to provide care on the battlefield, uh, which Ukraine has obviously turned into. And so I read that and prayed for his safe return home. And when he got home, I reached out to him and, and just asked him, would he be willing to share his story and share what he had the opportunity to do, but also what all went into his decision to make that huge sacrifice to go to the Ukraine in the first place. Yeah. So when you talk about uh, difficult conversations, what kinds of difficult conversations are you most drawn to? You know, one thing that I'm really passionate about is health equity and specifically why are certain communities less healthy than others? science as a whole, the medical community as a whole, what we're starting to learn is that there are a lot of factors outside of healthcare that contribute to folks being healthy and well. And we know that these social determinants, as they're referred to, or social drivers of health actually have a greater impact on an individual and a community's health and well-being than the actual delivery of healthcare. And one of those specific social determinants of health that I, it seems weird to say, enjoy talking about, but I have a true passion for is talking about the impact of implicit bias in healthcare and its impact uh, on health disparities and, and how it shapes these health disparities. And so I spend a lot of time having these conversations and facilitating these conversations actually in and outside of healthcare. But for me, it was when I learned about implicit bias, it was clear to me that my own biases were impacting the care that I was hoping to provide for my patients. And so I've learned a lot about myself. I think that it has helped me become a better doctor. And I think it has helped others become better healthcare practitioners as well. So tell me about your own implicit biases. What did you learn about yourself that you were really maybe surprised that you found out? I don't think that my biases have really proven to be much different than a lot of folks. I've learned how someone's social background, right? Their social economics can impact how we just interact with them. For one instance, when caring for someone who's experiencing homelessness, you know, a lot of the research shows that a lot of healthcare workers are less likely to make meaningful eye contact with those individuals, less likely to just simply put their hands out and touch them. And knowing this, it raised my awareness that, you know, I too have 
maybe not been the best doctor that I can for patients who do experience homelessness. And just having that awareness has allowed me to kind of mitigate some of those biases. So that's, I think, one example that stands out for me. So you work through this by having conversations with people, but are there other ways that you think the medical system could address and overcome some of those biases? Yeah. To take a step back, I think we can sometimes get caught up in just talking about these things. We just talk about it sometimes just to talk about it. But I think your question is insightful because we should also be asking, well, what can we do to make a difference and to be better? And I think one you know, low-hanging fruit is starting to understand the way that we document in medicine, how that is promoting biases and just thinking about literally just the words that we write in the chart and think about how many eyeballs are going to see that phrase and those words that we write and how that can, it's like kicking a can down the road that stays with the patient. And we have to understand that words do matter. And there are certain ways that we need to learn to refer to things that are less bias promoting than some of the phrases and terms that we've traditionally used in medicine. So do you have a, an example maybe for how this changed the way you fill out patient charts? Yeah, for sure. You know, one thing that I used to do, and I think a lot of people do without really thinking much about it, is the use of quotation marks, quoting something that a patient has said. And we often do it to maybe protect ourselves from litigation. But what it also can do is it can stigmatize that patient, socially or racially stereotype that patient. It can cast doubt to what that patient may say if we say the patient reports that the pain is quote unquote 10 out of 10 or 12 out of 10, if you will. As a reader of that note, it can plant ideas and thoughts in your head. I think another thing that I've get away from completely or using terms like non-compliant or frequent flyer. Uh, we know those terms do something to us when we read them. And the research has shown that it can actually impact the reader's perception of that patient uh, and actually can impact the, the care that that patient receives as well. So you have become aware of your own biases when it comes to all of this, but how do you get other doctors to be aware of that and change their behavior? It's important for them to realize that this isn't about pointing fingers and passing blame. And it's not about saying that we are bad people or bad physicians. It's actually not something that we should even feel ashamed or guilty of. And that's the first place for me to start is to help people understand that it's actually part of the human experience. It's part of the world around us. It's part of the way that our brains work, that we develop these biases. And so if that's the case, well, we shouldn't feel ashamed or guilty about it. And once people realize that, it kind of removes a barrier. It makes it a little bit easier to talk about. And so I start with that. And once they realize, hey, okay, maybe I too uh, have these biases, it allows them to have an awareness of these biased thoughts that may come to their minds and maybe recognize it before they translate that thought into an action. And so it's not as much about eliminating these biases because I don't believe that we can wipe away all of our biases, but acknowledging them and recognizing them so we can mitigate their impact is really what we should be striving to do. So is this part of the curriculum at the University of Oklahoma Medical School where you are a faculty member? It is, and I think it should be everywhere, to be completely honest with you. No matter what medical school you go to, you're going to learn how to deliver care, right? You're going to learn how to 
take a history and listen to heart and lung sounds, right? But we should also place value in these, what used to be called soft skills. And I think that undervalues how important they are. These are pertinent skills to being a really good physician. And so, yes, um, this is part of the training that all of our students get. They all are aware of the impact that bias has in healthcare. They are all aware of the health disparities that exist in healthcare. And, and really when they come in, we help them understand the, some of the questions that they should be asking in terms of why are certain communities less healthy than others and, and help them understand that it is their responsibility to help us all start to close these gaps. So I want to go back and talk about the pipeline programs that you were talking about earlier. What's your strategy for going into maybe communities where being doctors has never really been seen as a uh, a goal? The first part is we just have to have, especially for those of us who are involved in these pipeline programs or want to start them, we have to have some insight to what some of those community members have gone through, whether it be the issues that they've had with healthcare or the fact that, that they literally have never seen a physician that looks like them. And if you've never seen a physician that looks like you, how could you even fathom that you one day could become a physician? And so understanding that I think shapes our approach, right? I think it's important that we have people involved in these pipeline programs on our side that are from these communities, that are people of color, one thing I'll say, I'll admit it, I, I rarely have my white coat on. I can't tell you the last time I've worn my white coat in the hospital, but every single time I'm in front of young high school kids or young middle school kids or even elementary school kids, I get my white coat out of my closet and I put it on because of the optics of that is really important. Someone who looks like them, who's in a white coat, it seems simple and it is. But sometimes the simplest way is the best way. And for them to just see that person, he looks like my uncle. And he looks like me. You know, maybe I too one day could become a doctor. And so just realizing that simple approach, I think, can be really helpful. Okay, so you've piqued their interest and you've you've gotten them thinking, oh, maybe that's something I wouldn't mind doing. What are usually the next steps for them? Because for some, especially in smaller towns, they don't get the science classes they need. They don't get the preparation they need in order to be able to qualify, not only for a medical school, but for a four-year school that can get them onto the medical school. Well, after you have that initial contact, um, you have to find ways to maintain contact with these students. And a lot of times that's through various programs, summer programs where you're seeing them every summer, you're checking in with them, uh, whether it's after school programs during the school year, all of those times provide additional touch points. And we know with every increased touch point, the higher the chances we're going to be able to keep our eyes on these students. And along with that is providing someone that they can text or, or DM or call or email who maybe understands what it's like to be from the communities that they're from, that they can lean on, that they can talk to when times get tough. I think all of that's really, really important. But also, we do have to understand the barriers that they're going to face, right? And uh, helping to develop programs going to help them overcome those barriers, especially for these students once they get to a four-year college, helping them prepare for the MCAT. Because we know getting a high score in an MCAT doesn't mean you're going to be a good doctor, but we know it's a hurdle that you have to get over. Programs that are going to help them afford MCAT prep. You know, one of the biggest differences that I see from 
higher socioeconomic students who are in medical school and those who didn't quite make it into medical school is how did they prepare for the MCAT? For those who have been successful in that test, oftentimes they had a Kaplan course or a Princeton course and the students that have struggled couldn't afford it, right? And so I think as the gatekeepers of medicine, our academic institutions have to find ways to even the playing field. And that means putting your money where your mouth is to help students who have traditionally been shut out of these institutions uh, gain access. So how are your programs faring? Are you having success or are you struggling with them? It's good. We don't have it all figured out. You know, we've been doing it long enough now where some of the students that were in our high school programs are literally matriculated into medical school. And anytime you have that, that's really exciting, right? But we need to do better, like most folks do. And I think one place that a lot of institutions can fare better in improving the makeup of their student bodies is taking a look at admissions policies and seeing where the value is placed. And one challenge I have for my institution and the rest of the institutions out there is asking the question, are we placing too much value on GPA and MCAT scores and undervaluing the impact of a unique upbringing or being a diverse candidate, how that can enhance the care that patients will receive? Because that's what it's all about, right? Our institutions are training doctors to take the best care possible for their patients. And one thing we know is patients are diverse. And if we are not creating diverse physicians out into the workplace, there is no way that they can provide the best care for those patients. Dr. Jubran Pasha is an internal medicine physician in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's also an associate professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at Oklahoma University Health Physicians and the Assistant Dean of Student Affairs in the OU Tulsa University School of Community Medicine. He also hosts a podcast called Lean In with Jabron Pasha, which you can download and listen to wherever you get your podcasts. We thank him for sharing his experiences. We also thank the following individuals for their contributions to this project. Dr. Barb Richardson, nurse, educator, and interprofessional champion. Cameron Cup, who is the creator of the Finding Joy musical score and a current student at WSU Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine. Washington State University staff for marketing and communications from financial services and the collaboration for interprofessional health education research and scholarship. Also, Claire Martin-Tellis, the original executive producer of the podcast, and student intern Solène Oreff. They developed the first five episodes of Finding Joy. This episode was produced by Doug Nadvornik. If you're interested in sharing your perspective about well-being as a healthcare professional or you'd like to reach out, please contact our team by sending an email to medicine.ipoc at wsu.edu. And we encourage you to visit our website at opioideducation.wsu.edu forward slash about. Thank you for joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik.